wanted to talk a little bit today about podcasting and feminism. How on meta. A, how I know, right? On a broader <laughs> level, uh, because it's something that I'm interested in and in doing research, and uh, Robin is podcasting for the graduate college. Well, how do you feel if, if I suddenly decided that my dissertation research had a podcasting I'd edge? be happy because then I could cite it. <laughs> You'd probably get done first. I just found someone. <laughs> I just found someone who who just finished their dissertation on auth- feminist approaches to authenticity in comedy, which is a large... That's a big... How many pages is that? 5,000? Well, I don't know how... It's not... It's it's ethnographic, so oh, there okay. are... okay. So they talked about... Okay, so they, like, talk to comedians and stuff. It's. Have you ever had one of those experiences where you find the person and you just... And you figure... Read their CV and you're like, where have you been my whole life? Well, I read it and then I feel like, what's the point in trying? Well... You find how you delineate yourself yeah. from the other individual, and you also realize, ah, oh, male body writing about feminist issues, she has just as much right, if not more right, to be writing about these than me. Well, do you think that men who write about feminist issues automatically get, like, a plus? Because it's like, oh, how brave, or, like, how, um, you know, unusual. I, I do... Because I taught race, gender, and human identity for four years, um, and my boss was a um, straight white male feminist um, and who was in charge of the curriculum for a class on race, gender, and human identity. Um, The way that when I'm in a homosocial male community Uh of wokeness, Uh the way that that we talk about it is – not as I'm going to use a word I hate authentic uh-huh and it's because we're do we feel like we should I think there is an impulse and this is a structural thing I think about the academy uh there is an impulse among men to feel like we should get credit because we're we are looking at something and I think embodied research is different mm-hmm. than than spectatorial research. Um, Mm -hmm. Also, if you're a feminist um, writing about feminism and female experiences in stand-up comedy and you're citing all male scholars, uh, uh, which is something that I've read, um, essays about stand-up comedy by really important performance studies people Mm -hmm. that have just, and I look at the people they're citing and I'm like, where have you even heard of Judith Butler? Oh, gosh. Um, and, like, I think what makes the essay that I wanted to talk about by Stacey Copeland so mm-hmm. important is that she is doing something in this essay that I think is different than most podcast scholarship that I've written, which is she is applying queer performance theory to understand something. Maybe yeah. not as – and I don't think that there is as much performance – in it as I would like. I wish she had explained more about the performance side. Um, although I, you could say everything is performance. Well, also to to criticize an article or chapter for not including something is like clearly they you know if they included everything that would be the criticism, right? Right. And it I'm looking at it. I have it printed out because my eyes are failing me and I can't read anything more on my screen. Um, it feels pretty long. Like I'm yeah. here. Here's some. Here's some. 
flipping through pages noises. Yeah. And I, when I got to the end of it, I was like, oh, that's it? Yeah. I mean, not to the fault of her. She only had a word count. But, like, I could have – there was so much more in it. Um, and I feel like I already steered you off track from something you were going to say earlier. Well, the thing – she's doing a few things in here that I think are important for framing podcasts as scholarship and scholarship around podcasting. Okay. Is she's choosing – a podcast that is not one of like the 10 that people like to write about the heart the heart which ha- i had not heard of it's but that doesn't mean anything right it's a radiotopia podcast. one yeah i've not listened to this podcast uh because it's not one of the ones that a priori yeah. the academy has told me i needed to listen to yeah yeah which probably has something to do with the fact that it has a very feminist point of view. Yeah, it seems very gendered as well. I mean, it talks about relationships and and emotions, so already that's feminized. Right, and it, from what I can tell, it also came out of Canadian radio versus Canadian public radio versus um, like um, PRX, which is yeah. where the the radio sort of birthplace of a lot of what we would consider like public podcasting now mm-hmm. is coming out of like the they're either the Third Coast Audio Festival, mm-hmm. WNYC, WBEZ, or PRX, or in some cases, KCRW in Santa Monica, California. Yeah. But she's coming out of a Canadian positionality. She's in Toronto, you mm-hmm. know, the the birth the birthplace of media cultural criticism. The, yeah. The, the hotbed. Mm-hmm. And so her positionality with what, what the... Um, the performers are doing and both mm-hmm. copeland is probably interested in this because of its canadian origin because she's also canadian yes i'm a um, Fraser. uh and so i think it's one it's citing things that i don't see in podcast study um this yeah she's taking things that so you know, I, I see like a beginner. You want to do an article on podcasting. You put in Lexus Nexus podcasting. I'm just kidding. Lexus well, Nexus. but so she's taking things that wouldn't normally be associated with podcasting and applying, which is really why I really liked it. Yeah, because that's start, how you start a field. right? Yeah, she start with Sarah Ahmed, and she yeah. she makes a point on the first page of the essay that feminism has kind of forgot about audio because we've been so interested in the male gaze. Is yeah. that for all of the good that the Laura Mulvey essay has done for us? It has given us a visual look at the gaze, where the gaze can be looked at as a much more looking at the oral as well. Can I read something? I like the sentence that she wrote. I argue that podcasting as an intimate oral medium offers a powerful platform for listening experience that can challenge the visual philic, heteronormative, and gender expectations by engaging the listener through the effective use of sound. That was just like, boom, like, like write a sentence... Say your thesis. I mean, as somebody who always is looking at how things are written because I'm going to do it, I was like, I think out loud, I said, bam, great sentence. Do you think that she accomplishes this in the essay? I think that it's one of those essays where she, well, first of all, it's a textual analysis, so she's using one text. Right. Which I love because, um, you know, like really focus in. I think it is more of one of those essays or that's more of like, let's contemplate this. Like, let's just, she's sort of like the academic form of spitballing. Yeah. Which some people do not like um, and some people get frustrated over, but I think that's what we need to do. Like, it's discursive. That's, yeah, that's like the questioning of and it. I think it's kind of important that she's, why do scholars take discursive approaches but yeah. to destabilize 
the assumptions that we're making about how we do work in a in a field and it's notable that this is uh this anthology of essays this collection is edited by richard berry who is the guy in podcast studies he created the essay um Will podcasts kill the radio star in 2006? Oh yeah, I remember that. Yeah, and he. Wrote, I really do remember that. I'm not just saying. Yeah, I, I think you told he me. He did it not. At some he point. did not coin the term because that was yeah. a journalist. But yeah. he is the first one to to sort of say, "Hey, let's take this seriously." Because he came from a radio studies, yeah, positionality became because he came from a British radio studies positionality. Mm-hmm. There is much more of a radio science approach that is much more best practices and this is what we do Mm -hmm. some aesthetics he's done a lot of good writing on the difference between radio and podcasting Mm -hmm. um beyond just the technical yeah beyond the technical and he makes the point that it is intimate in a way that is that is one of the aesthetic norms and expectations of what podcasting is i don't think that all podcasts are intimate I think that there are some that are just I there. think there's a scale. I think the whole medium is intimate because you're talking to – well, except for, like, uh, narrative ones, you're talking to – it's like kind of like a hailing, like like you, I'm talking to you. Even though, like, right now we're really just talking to each other. Um, we – obviously we could just talk to each other anywhere, but we're talking to each other knowing that other people would be listening. We're kind of performing. Right, and yeah. I think that the performance of that – one of the points that Barry makes in his essay, it's one of it's a very long name about um, differentiating the difference. It's about the difference between radio and podcasting. Is that podcasting, according to Barry, is experienced in a more intimate way? That he says most people listen to podcasts on their phone through their ears. Something that Copeland, I think, repeats here yeah. as well. Um, I don't, by the way. I listen to them while laying down in my bed on my. Um, on my Echo Dot, which is somehow even more intimate. Yeah. So you do you do anything else while you listen? Sometimes, very rarely, I might edit, edit photos while I'm doing it. Okay. But I have a very different uh, way of listening to podcasts than most people in that that is the thing that I'm doing, and that is the thing that I'll be doing for the next two or three hours hmm. is that I – especially there are certain podcasts that I will always – that's just the only thing that I'm doing – um, there's, um, if it's a comedy podcast in particular, I need, I want the intimacy of that because mm-hmm. I've become a bit of a shut in. And so I need the intimacy of, of just being doing that thing. Which brings up another point. Um, I feel like we need a, we need a, like a char- like a, like yards of string to yeah. like connect our points. Two things that just struck me about that. One is it's kind of the capitalist machine that has made podcasts the way they are because it's like oh you can listen to it during work i clean my house so i'm doing the things to be a good citizen of consumption and effectiveness and always being productive that podcast has almost glamorized that like for your work commute for um you know taking a walk while you exercise so i think in a way it's sort of captured into that niche too and sometimes i listen um, actually, I'll put it on in my house, and I do like listening to it not on headphones, actually, like when I can just listen to my house. But it, it, it is 
an experience to sit and do. I'm always doing something. Uh, sometimes I used to, when I had, before graduate school, I would use adult coloring books and listen to podcasts, mm-hmm. which, which was just like heaven, yeah. you know, getting those two senses. The other thing I was going to say was I'm no psychologist, but do you think that podcasts help social skills because you're listening, you're being modeled about how to have a conversation? Yeah, well, so I think I alluded to this on the last broadcast. I'm on I'm on what we call the spectrum, what used to be called Asperger's. And so, like, I know a lot of other people on that spectrum, and um, there is a weird, and this is, this might be one of the reasons why the internet is so weird. Is that, just one of many <laughs> that, that that a lot of people on the spectrum in the late '90s got pulled towards um, Howard Stern as sort of this Uh-oh. figure for sort. Luckily, I didn't. Mine okay. was Stranger. Mine was okay. was the late Art Bell. And his like one a.m. UFO um, four hour radio show. And now show. you're a conspiracy theorist. I, I so why Howard Stern? Because that there is an openness. Okay. Um, there it's structured unstructuredness. Okay. It is finding ways to talk about things that are verboten and navigating those rules in a way where there are no stakes to those rules. Yeah, he had. I mean, he had guests, but I don't think he had like a very clear agenda. Right, and I think that. I, I think that the balance uh, of that, I could generally, there's a great moment in, have you ever seen the movie Private Please Parts. Gift? Oh, no. With um, with Catherine Keener and Oliver Platt. No. Um, no. It's a, um, oh, what is the name of the filmmaker? Um, it's a Nicole Holof Center yeah. movie, if you've seen. There's a great moment where there's a character in that who's this awkward guy who's a, about to have an affair with this woman who is giving his masseuse. Mm-hmm. And he starts in the middle of this, this talk with this beautiful woman talking about Howard Stern. Yeah. And, and something clicked in my brain watching that. It's like, I've seen that from people that I know mm-hmm. on the spectrum. We are, we are drawn to recreating structured um, intimacy because huh. the world is – more difficult for us to figure out the norms of intimacy. Of course. And so podcasting, especially comedy podcasting, gives us a chance to to see a structure. And when that structure is defined in a way that the structure actually allows you to be more honest because you know what is allowed in that space, I, I think that's one of the reasons that WTF with Mark Maron has become so influential. Because he applied the rules of what he had learned doing radio mm-hmm. for um, the – what was the, the Al Gore? Um, Air sa- America. Air America where he, he worked a couple shifts at that. With Brendan um, Small, mm-hmm. the, um, his producer, they learned the lessons of what they are good at. And they leveraged that into creating a new imagined community. In a way, uh, this is a, something I've thought a lot about is – does the, co- the space that a podcast is performed in become a utopian space? And I think in the case of the myth mythos that podcast scholars have placed around Mark Maron's garage, um, yeah, there is an point. idea of the utopian space, but there are rules to that utopian space. Who sets those rules? Mark Maron? Mark Maron, who is, of course, a man who had been divorced two times at that point and very— 
and spoken in his stand-up comedy very antagonistically about his wife, who has historically not necessarily been the greatest agent in the world. Although if you listen to that show as a text, which is something I would never recommend anyone ever do with a podcast, it's looking at a podcast as a text is a terrible idea. Yeah. But you can see the arc there. Yeah. But you look at the way that the Todd Glass interview that we talked about last Mm -hmm. week that I've done a bunch of research happens, there is a way of dealing with authenticity that the first time that he came to the podcast, he was able to meet and perform authenticity correctly to the rules of that space Mm -hmm. without admitting one of the most fundamental truths of his life, which was that he was gay. He was capable. Glass was capable of sort of, I think one of the things that that narrative, the Todd Glass narrative reveals is the cognitive dissonance of having a male heteronormative uh, notion of masculine authenticity Mm -hmm. is that the affect of masculinity that he was that he felt comfortable in was so associated with a heteronormative notion of masculinity that he didn't feel like he could be gay because his identity and affect was so different than what he thought mm-hmm. it should be. So I think the rules of podcasting and the rules of what that space are are made by the person that does the the dressing of the stage. So who, what are the rules right now in this po- semi-impromptu podcast? Um, so the rules that we set in here were that we were going to talk about scholarship okay. and podcasting. Um we have to be out of here by exactly two. <laughs> okay. No, so, I can go a little past two. Um, and um, I mean, they're they're set by who else is in the space. Well, I mean, but yet there's there's those like physical rules. But what are the unspoken rules, like the social rules or the the performative rules? Well, I notice that we our physicality is very heightened in a way because we're in a large room in the middle of a large room but the the podcast um audience didn't hear and um this is what i call calling the space is Uh that there was an awkward pause earlier in the recording when we accidentally um bumped our shoes into each other oh that was oh yeah oh yeah (laughs) that was you and that was yeah that was a great and i was like (laughs) did i kick something or it's like oh it's it's her shoe it's fine yeah um uh, this is an interesting part of the performance. I'm I think I looked note. down too, and I was yeah. like, "What am I?" Because I my legs flail all over the place and, when I sit. I'm a, I can't have ants in my and pants. That's a I can't lot, sit yeah, still. My, me too. And yeah, that's a like the authenticity of that moment is something that the microphones can't can't pick up. Now, sometimes, do you like making eye contact during podcasts? Because I've been giving you eye contact and not because that's my general right. thing. It's one of the now two- I'm doing intense eye contact. <laughs> when I was going through theater training yeah. um, as an undergraduate, um, I did a lot of Sanford Meisner training. Uh-huh. And Meisner training is all— I did all a little of- bit of that in improv, yeah. yeah it's- I hate it. Oh, it's terrible. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's terrible, and it's phallocentric. Yeah. And Meisner yeah. was—he would have been canceled if he was I mean, alive today. I mean, yeah, I bet he's a—yeah. Oh, like, no, he— just because he believes so much in the moment, he would, like, grab people's breasts in the And be like, this is a moment. Yeah. Yes. And so, however you react is your reaction, right? Yeah. And so, I when I when I teach acting, I the first thing that I teach my act, I don't I don't accept Meisner wholesale anymore. But I yeah. do teach them that the best two tools that you have on stage are your partner's eyes, uh-huh. and that the rules 
of a good relationship and a a like podcasting sort of a podcast are based on your relationship with the performers. Oh yeah. And, and so the performers and if we look at Sarah Ahmed's notion of performed emotion, mm-hmm. that the emotion what boundaries the motion um, the emotion sets up because mm-hmm. Ahmed very cleverly states in um, that book that we we keep quoting <laughs> that I just forgot the name of uh, cultural politics, politics of emotions emotion. yeah. or maybe it was in the essay that's quoted in here it might have been maybe. in the essay I'm just checking my phone yeah. because I just got a text from my parents and oh, that no. that usually means um, but go ahead so I just wanted to, I'm calling that space that I'm okay. checking my phone uh, while you're gonna while you do that gonna I'm gonna the... pull up that that section where where she talks about um, where she talks about um, Ahmed. Um. Okay. Um, so knowing my mother, the first thing she says on the voicemail because I have it transcribed, she's like, "Everything's okay," because we're a panicky family. Yeah. So if she calls, so I'll. So now I'm putting my phone away. And I, later. It does. Although I do need it because of the time. My mother, I do like it when my mother like will just text me and say, "I just butt dialed you." <laughs> Thanks, mom. And <laughs> okay, um, so so you're looking that up. My I and I'm also taking now. I feel like I have to describe every physical action. I'm taking notes because there's so many things I want to get back to. Um, so you're saying so? Would you agree that a podcast, and not just for people on the spectrum, can be a social script? Yeah to like help follow because I feel like I have modeled the way that I have interacted with people off of podcasts. Like I, since listening to podcasts for a while, like I'm always an early, I don't want to brag, but I'm like an early adapter of podcasts that it's helped me talk to new people or like connect with people more intimately. And I don't mean like romantically intimately. I mean, in like the intimate, intimate way that you connect with people the, so i think that sort of what yeah. i call what i think of as like the authenticity economy is yeah. that we are rather than the norms of because i think all social constructs and norms are commodifiable yeah and that goes to how you perform at the dinner table at thanksgiving yeah how you perform in a classroom all of those like i have a teacher that commodifies classroom interactions and that she'll write down each time someone talks in a class. It's the most nerve-wracking thing I I've don't ever... I like that. Oh, it, it gives me so much anxiety yeah. because it's always me. It's always oh, me. Oh, see, that's talking. It's always me that's talking. And so I, I have had to train my brain to, like, in this economy, scarcity is value. Well, as somebody who sometimes doesn't talk in class because I'm scared, there's this building like, oh, I have to say something, I have to say something. Like in th- Now, in some classes, I'm very chatty. In yeah. some classes, I'm not. In a theory class, I'm not very chatty because I'm really absorbing and I'm trying to understand these big theoretical things. So when somebody's like, you have to talk, you have to talk, it's this building anxiety that makes me not pay attention to what's going on. But I like that term. I wrote that down, authenticity economy. Um, who are we performing for right now? Are we performing each for each other? But are we? But is this really right? But well, if all, we weren't recording, we'd be talking the same way. I think we might because Similar. we're also performing for ourselves. Mm-hmm. Is that part of the construct of like creating rules for uh, for conversation? Is to assimilate yourself into a reality 
And when you correctly perform society, it releases endorphins into your brain. Is that like frame, like framing devices? Like what's his name, Goffman? Yeah, I would say. um, And I think that I get happy when I have an effective. um, I was thinking about the 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 patterns of thought that like release endorphins when I realize that I like something I'm reading fun home right now and the Uh moment that I let myself say the phrase this is really good yeah that released a bunch of endorphins it was good before I said that but it felt really good to give value to something yeah and so I think that in that way I think particularly for us that are in cultural criticism us talking about culture is performing for ourselves because it feels really good to like things. Yeah. It also feels really good to just totally roast something if you can do it well. Yeah. But that's a, like a different, I think that that's a different emotional performance. Yeah. Um, and I think that what the microphone does is it facilitates relationships. Uh-huh. And I think that it facilitates ways of communicating with each other. I know people that um, I had a friend that said I make movies with, so that I can be f- friends with my, with my other friend, and I don't think we know how to be friends if we don't make movies. And That's a, like a very like interesting truth. There are relationships. If you think about, I have friends that podcast that I know wouldn't be friends anymore if I they love weren't that. still podcasting. Yeah, I mean, but, but in this world, as an adult, maintaining friendships is a nightmare. Right. I, and I think, the other day I was like, can I just give up on friends? Like, I, it's too much work. <laughs> And I think that that's one of the things here that to tie this sort of uh, back to the a feminist approach. Yeah. That where that becomes dangerous is because there's another piece in here about podcasting networks. Yeah. Podcasting networks and the structures of podcasting and a lot of those early podcasters were men. Yeah. And were men, I think, because of the way that technology is socialized and the you way needed the technical knowledge. That, yes, because of, yeah, I'm sure there Soundboards was. I, there, I'm sure that there is a there were women out there that knew how to do RSS feeds. Yeah, but it's it's it is it's a coded masculine thing, and I to think, be computers and recording. And stuff. I think then it becomes about when the performance goes in there mm-hmm. is that there is an assumption that you're performing in a space that males have created so that they can feel safe. Mm-hmm. And when I think about that, I think of the comedy podcasting networks that um, that people like um, Stacey Brown at, um, I think she's at Westchester now, mm-hmm. has done a lot of writing about sort of the male culture, the authenticity com- uh, economy in stand-up comedy and how women are expected to go into a space uh, and and not make men uncomfortable and because it's the male safe space. And I think I just th- threw up in my mouth. I know. Um, <laughs> and I don't want to speak for Stacy because at yeah. some point I want to, I want to, I want to, I want to get her on, on one of these. Cause she, yeah. she is amazing. Um, there she's, I think like been looking at, um, put your hands together, the Cameron Esposito, yeah. which is just an open mic that they put, but on also po- a podcast. Yeah. yeah. And she is doing, a female feminist version of the authenticity economy, but it's coming from her positionality. The emotions that she's performing 
are authentic and they are in and consequently because she is upset about things and she's she comes from a feminist positionality mm-hmm. her performance of authenticity mm-hmm. happens in an unruly body yeah and so like i mean she is fam- if you google the phrase side mullet um, mm-hmm. She's the first image that comes. Oh, out. I know who she is. Yeah, she's great. Yeah, she's great. Um, she's not for me. I would agree, but I wonder how much of. It- I think of the work she's doing is great. I don't enjoy the podcast, but that's a completely subjective enjoyment. And that podcast is still booked eighty percent male comics. Yes, I think I. I think I don't. I think it's the the listening to stand up comedy yeah. is not. Because my favorite podcasts are the ones where you're, like, eavesdropping on a conversation. Right, like, yeah, and I think that my favorite murder is managing to do that in some ways. I think that that's an interesting hybrid. The truth doesn't seem like that's what it's doing. Having not listened to the truth, I I feel like one of the things that Copeland focuses on in this essay um, is, is the production of it. Mm-hmm. And I think the production of things often interrupts that intimacy. Mm-hmm. I think there are very few podcasts that are like quote unquote produced mm-hmm. that can maintain the the continuity of the intimacy that that I associate with what you're talking about, the mm-hmm. voyeuristic component. I think that in the large segment, something like S Town, um, where it is archival. Um, audio of someone who's dead and there's more of a responsibility to capture That's the more journalism. It's like I'm reading, it's like I'm listening to a long form right. journalism, which is different. Right. But it also, there's an weird, I think that's the thing that things like serial bring to journalism is it allows an intimate relationship. Oh, I love it. Did you listen to Dirty John? No. Um, I watched like half of the TV, the Amazon thing that, Oh, can I can I just interrupt with something now yeah. that I think because podcasts have become such a like a thing now is that there are movie and TV adaptations of podcasts, and I think that that setting the stage for life. When I was you know, I got invited to be an extra in the pilot for the My Brother, My Brother and Me t- CISO sh- series because I kind of know those guys. Okay. Um, I couldn't do oh, it because I was in the a... name-dropping part now? Oh, they will be very happy if I never... I name-dropped <laughs> them on our last episode, and uh-huh. they will be very happy if I never name-drop. Okay. Like, um, I gave them... Uh, talking about, like, awkward performances, I once gave them at a show, I worked for them, a gift package that included a CD of Waffle House novelty songs and the collected work of Aeneas Neen. And that's it. Yeah. So if they never talk to me again, well, it's fine. isn't that in- okay? So wow. Okay, uh, let me write down a million things I want to talk about. Um, and then what? What were you just talking about? We were talking about intimacy and and um, oh, I had started saying something that I completely forgot. Wow. Okay. Real moment. Well, other thing. Is, oh, the, the adaptations to TV, yeah. and it just doesn't work. I don't like it. Well, because. TV has such an aesthetic narrative. There's one that's worked. Well, it's like a book. It's like I never like the book. If I like a book, the adaptation, I never like. So it's it's part of the adaptation. What do you think is the one that There are worked? two that I think worked. Um, and both of them had such amorphous structures that when they translate. I, th- I like the Comedy Bang Bang TV show. Okay, yes. And yes. I, like, I like the um, 
throwing shade TV show. I never is, watched it, which is my favorite podcast, and I feel bad, but I just I didn't have true TV at the time, and yeah. it got canceled. So yeah, um, so it's it's an interesting. I think because those both of the people they were executive producers on the thing, they yeah. didn't try to turn it into a narrative. Marin's terrible. The TV show. Oh here. my gosh, that show! Why does it even exist? No one like it is just the most pointless show. Well, because because Marin was a comedian in the '90s and felt like he was owed his show. Named yeah, after and if him. it's you have the number one podcast, you're you know in the the shared economy, you're like, well, let's make more money. Let's make that. You know, I mean, it's like how they spin off superhero movies. They're like, it's popular, so we need to make a show. So, and the other thing, the other thing I wrote down was like podcast fandom is a whole other thing that is fascinating to me. I, also, I hate podcast fans sometimes. Um, so it makes me not like a podcast. Fandom is encouraged because I think podcasts more than as an as an industry, yeah, more than any other um, like medium industry are dependent on fandom. Oh yeah, yeah. Directly, uh, almost more directly. And fan interaction. And there's been some really good writing about fan interaction with podcasts, uh, particularly with Maximum Fun, where I think they might even have mentioned Throwing Shade, which was still on the network at the time. And yeah, I want I mean, I also love the drama. Why did they leave that network? I mean, I know the, the... I'm not ready to talk about that in scholarship yet. Okay. I mean, I know there's a lot. Maximum Fun has a very specific way that they get paid through their sponsors. So for some people, they just don't want to do that. It's also more complicated because they also receive money from from public radio through because of Bullseye. Yeah. And um, there is a great essay or dissertation to be written about that network because of what an interesting narrative of and guess who's still looking for a, a dissertation topic oh i know i think you should write about um chuck tingle okay well that's another thing <laughs> we won't we, we won't yeah you don't that. those of you who are writing down everyone we've we've talked about in this episode don't need to write that last yeah. one down please don't i i think that i think the thing that fandom does though and i had an interaction because um you know, I've been doing a little bit of ethnographic research into yeah. the collapse of Pop Rocket uh-huh. and um, and the Pop Rocket Facebook group, which is still very active. Yeah. And I just asked everyone on there. Um, the show was canceled very unceremoniously in a way that, like, they just showed up to do their show. And they're like, oh, by the way, you, your last show's in three weeks. Um, so yeah. uh, I asked them, and people were very upset because people get upset about everything. You know, people got upset when they got rid of Mr. Toad's Wild Ride in the 90s, and there are people that are still not over that. I mean, yeah. so It's a good ride, but I'm I'm over it. Yeah, I don't think the Winnie the Poos is good. But but I just asked, uh, right, I waited until after the the new show that the two remaining peoples had premiered, um, Waiting to Excel, which is a great show, and I think epitomizes all the things that we're saying podcasting can do which is like talk about culture in a way that's pleasurable but and also talk about positionality and also create a feminist Mm -hmm. space with rules that are defined by two people also because they haven't had any guests yet yeah they can patrol the space in a really healthy way that's why i like podcasts that don't have rotating guests i just wanted to say that by the way like interview podcasts drive me crazy i want the same people each week I think that they they can be done well. I think that if you have created, it takes you longer to create the rules of a space if you start with interviews. Yeah. Um, oh, that's a good point. Yeah. 
I think that if you do your first 20 episodes alone, you can start to bring guests in because they well, have a framework. Well, if there's two people and a guest, but if it's always one person and a guest, right. that it just doesn't – yeah, you're right. It feels chaotic. I don't feel the – you know what I mean? Plus, I don't – I like podcasts where you learn about people's lives and things come back. Like, do you – so do you listen to Throwing Shade? I, I don't um, – I – If it's I, not for you, yeah, it's not for you. It's, it's just not – I don't know that I have room on my computer for that one. Yeah, I mean, and plus we have, like, uh, degrees to finish. So right. Time is limited. But I think that there are things where the combination of Turk because the show is they talk about issues, they talk about pop culture, but they're also friends. So the issues that come up in their lives, you remember. Like, one of the – Brian actually got divorced, and when I heard that, I was like – shook and a lot of people were really upset because it's like you're with these people you learn about their lives but then you remember like certain details about them there's a certain podcast who i remember when they the podcaster got their dog um like 12 years ago and i'm really worried the dog's gonna die soon like i I get that i get that well i think the great example of that not to go back to Marin, but because everyone else does was when i don't know if you listen to that regularly is it when his cat died or he broke up with his girlfriend when his cat left cat didn't die because remember boomer lives and that's that's a major part of the mythos yeah but you get yeah, yeah you get into kind of their lives and you learn about it and it's it's kind of this this update, you know what I mean? Even if it's a minor I, thing. I called a friend of mine who's like a devotee, and I I dip of in Marin? of yeah. Who he actually has some of his cadences. He's been listening so long now. Oh, it's God. very no. He's he's a very cool dude. Yeah. He just he's listened long enough that I can hear when he's doing Marin. Is it Adam in my program? No, it's no Marin. one in your it's, okay. Um, but I'll have to talk to him about yeah. that because I have strong feelings about. But like <laughs> about I, Adam or about Mark Marin? Mark Marin. Okay. Um, was. <laughs> I, I, Adam's great. Yeah. I, like, I just did a podcast with him yesterday. Oh, you're cheating on me with another podcaster. <laughs> oh my God. I've done so many podcasts. <laughs> oh, I've, when I was doing, when I was doing my podcast, um, I was just thinking about this on like how the temporality sets a moment in space. Yeah. Which also makes me, especially in comedy podcasting, um, an individual podcast sets you in a moment. Yeah. That also separates you from temporality. I keep thinking of that moment in Nanette where she talks about a joke arrests your development because you're stuck with the same punchline. Yes. And I think that a lot of the points that I was making on my podcast were – I look back now and none of the life situations that any of those people are in were in when they talked to me are still true. Yeah. Like I had a, I talked to this um, burlesque dancer about her being gay married in West Virginia, and now she's married to a man. Yeah. Um, and so it's it's an interesting experience that you start to realize, though, that you're having a relationship with someone that can never be truly authentic because you're seeing them just at one moment. The podcast. You can keep getting more, but I think one of the reasons that it's a problem to look at a podcast as a text is that it's a text is set in stone in emotion in a moment, unless you're willing to look at it as like an MCU expanded text, which is, I think, where a lot of podcasting goes now. And when I think about like the example of, um, oh, I'm trying to think of uh, an example of someone whose life changed like completely over the course of a 
of a podcast. So I have an example. Yeah. I used to listen to this podcast called Totally Lame. It was on Oh, yeah. So they, and I, so I like divorced that podcast because mm-hmm. it's really started annoying me, but that's fine. Other people mm-hmm. like them. So they started out unmarried, they started out married, but they couldn't have children. I remember they talked about they were having a hard time having children. And since then they've had two children. And become parents through the course of this podcast. And they talk a lot about, like, when our kids get to listen to this week, like, our kids will have this record of our relationship before they existed and when they were little. Because they used to do, like, two or three podcasts a week. So it's weird having this, like, record. So this gave me a a thought, though. The aesthetics, I think one of the the things that we kind of pointed to was this idea, and I think this is kind of a normative idea of – of what podcasts are is that the aesthetics of a podcast are created in the first 20 episodes. Mm-hmm. Doesn't that leave you in a state of an arrest development that you have to define your relationship by stuff that happens in some cases a decade ago? That- well, are there podcasts that have completely sort of ch- without, with the exception of having like new hosts that have really transformed from what they started as? Um. Well, I not to go back to WTF, that started essentially as like a more raw sketch thing. He was doing morning radio as a podcast. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't really until like episode – and there's an there's an okay essay about this by a scholar named Vincent Maserko called The, um, the Pursuit of Authenticity where he talks about um, Marin. Um, I think that there are – I think that there are things about that essay that I don't like, but it how doesn't. Do fi- like, how do you find these academic essays? Do you search for just podcasting? Do you search for like the names of the podcast? I I found one, and then I just go you through use their the bibliography. Yes, and I find everyone else. Okay. Mazerko, um, to my knowledge, wrote the first like dissertation about comedy podcasting. How do you spell that? I think it's M E S E R K O. Uh, he is at okay. Cal Poly now. I'll look for it, but I might have you send that to me. It's a, it's a it. very it's a very well cited paper, and okay. I think that th- that essay does the best job of explaining what people mean when they talk about authenticity of podcasting. But it's a very he uses the word a word to describe how podcasting authenticity happens as emerging. Mm-hmm. Oh, scholars love that word. Hate, Cultural studies love emerging, emerging culture. Yeah, I I like spent one of my drafts of one of my papers. I spent like uh, two to three paragraphs trying to destabilize his use of that word "emerge" before I realized that no one cared. Yeah. <laughs> Here's the other thing: I have always made a rule for myself is don't study something academically that I really love. I should study something that's interesting. So I'm also. Like I, um, what did I ruin? I ruined the unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt for myself because I used oh. it in my thesis. Oh, I hope man. I, I don't want to ruin podcasts for myself. My third book, if because I, I already have an idea for my first and second. I was like, wait, my what? third book is going to be um, problematizing um, the work of Tina Fey and Robert Carlock. Okay, my favorite things in the world is Thirty Rock. Yeah, but it is so problematic, and it's problematic in a way. That because the structure of that show, um, I'm not saying criticizing is yeah. bad. I criticize everything yeah. I watch. My favorite show, yeah. I watch The Bachelor. Yeah, and that like I know the criticism of that. It's just forcing yourself to look at, to 
constantly read about it and watch it over and over again and pick it apart. Like it re- like I just don't want to do that. But I guess I can't write about every podcast ever. Right. And that's that's one of the yeah. things about writing about podcasts is you have to choose which ones to write about. Well, I guess I've, I'm not ruined for film because the papers I've written about film, I don't write about every film ever. And I like and I you can't write about every podcast. Uh, the search engine I th- I wish I could remember the name of it. I think it's like listennotes.com says that there are over 700,000 podcasts and over 45 million podcast episodes. Yeah. So, but also, how do you, like, it could just be like uh, two people in a living room with a recorder. Like, how do you count what a podcast is? Well, because you can self-release. Right. And I think that... Like we are doing now. Right. And I think that that, well, it's not a podcast till it's on an RSS feed. Okay. I think that that's, that is the one aesthetic rule about podcasting huh. that I de- delineate is that because yeah that's that's the that it is doesn't defining become, of it doesn't it. become content yeah. until it's contained by something yes and so podcasts are different because it is if you think about like it phenomenologically uh, movies are sent out yeah um, are projected onto something TV comes through a wire yeah. into an object. Podcasts are sent through those wires, but they're attached to other data. It's the it's the medium that is encompassed in inside of something. It I becomes just, yeah. content. I want to read something else from the um, Yeah. She says uh Let me get to this. is fascinating. Yet the voice, although not tangible, can be withdrawn or projected at will as a product and as an immovable part of the body. In a way, as the hair or finger fingernails project outward, so does the voice. Yeah. I like that. And I think that's – that in that way, I kind of look at a podcast as a technology of the self as a way to project one's voice yeah. for types of people who the normal social norms don't allow them to have a voice and you can choose to listen to that voice or not, but there's no longer an expectation that you have to play by other people's rules to have a voice. Yeah. And I think that when I look at the 45 million episodes of a podcast, it's daunting. And if you think about it as an industry, it's untenable. But, I mean, how many people are in the world? Maybe this is utopian, but all people should have a voice. Yeah. Everyone should be allowed to express themselves. You shouldn't be able to say there are too many voices out there. They're making other voices less profitable. Of course, this is America, and we have a habit of, of shutting people up when they're not profitable. What? So there was a comment in our class board about the podcast market is oversaturated. Yeah. I was thinking about that, and I like that we brought in um, Cotton. Um, yeah. Cotton on that um, – here and to Slay podcast. The Here to Slay podcast. And Can I just interrupt? Did you hear what happened to Roxanne Gay? She criticized a New York Times writer, and he wrote a letter to her personally. was like, you owe me an apology, and we have to meet about it. Sorry. <laughs> it just was funny that, like, if women wrote a message like that to every man who criticized them, like, <laughs> we would never have time. But anyway, I just – that came up. Anyway, go on. Oh, my uh, – and uh, the – see – and that's that's like the I I I feel like there's a there's a sense that I don't want to get into politics, but yeah. if the 
everything it, is politics. But yeah, that's true. Uh, if Elizabeth Warren is a Democratic nominee, she will be expected to apologize for the Pocahontas, for like her Native American thing, even though she was performing a part of her identity, not in a, a particularly good way. Yeah. That her opponent, like, also, I love that he thought that Roxanne Gay wouldn't talk about it or post his actual email, which she did. Like, <laughs> you're underestimating Roxanne Gay and her influence. Roxanne Gay is an interesting character yeah. because of the influence she carries and how she's created that almost brand for herself. And I think there's authenticity in yeah. it. Yeah. And she performs, the podcast spaces that she performs in are normative spaces. Yeah. Like, I first heard Roxanne Gay on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, which mm-hmm. was for a while, the biggest podcast in in the world. It was number one. And it's like a game it, show format. It was a game show, and it's non-native. Um, when I, in podcast um, uh, terminology. terminology, that means it started on radio, mm-hmm. that it's, it's produced for radio and then podcast. And then separate. kind of almost, the it was archived, and then that became a podcast, and then when radio went away. Right. Or does NPR have all their shows available as a podcast? I think at this point they do. What they're pushing now is the NPR app. Of course. Um, which does, which is a cool thing. The way that the app works is very cool, is it self-curates. But I almost feel like self-curation, that the pod, having a machine curate for you defeats the purpose of podcasting because it takes away the subscription of a podcast as a performance itself. What podcast app do you use to manage your podcasts? Um on my computer, I just use iTunes. I'm increasingly listening on this search engine that I will think of the name of the minute we quit recording. Okay. Um, on my phone, I use Google Podcasts. Um, okay, because now there's this thing of proprietary, so like yeah, Stitcher Premium, Stitch. Luminary, that exclusive only. So I used to um, subscribe to Str- Stitcher Premium yeah. because there was this one show that was on Stitcher Premium and then mm-hmm. it went away. So I switched to Luminary Yeah, because... Of course. The reason why is going to anger some people is because Lena Dunham has a podcast on there, and I enjoy Lena Dunham, and I know people don't, and I know people have feelings about her. She's and that's the perfect fine. person to be a podcaster, though. That's what I'm saying. She it's, It works. She's you, a very good podcaster. You know what podcaster, and this is something I'll maybe write a paper about someday is, yeah. that I'm curious about, and I should probably start listening now because it's the time to do it, is Amy Schumer has a podcast She's a, yeah. on iHeartRadio. And I feel like she's the good as- for that. she is, but the aesthetics of the way the framing around that of having it be Amy Schumer doing something akin to what Mark Maron did on WTF, which is interview yeah. comedians and present a more authentic version of herself. The fact that it's that I think that um, that Amy Schumer is a uh, unruly body yeah. in, in stand up comedy for a lot of reasons and that she is antagonized and particularly her Netflix specials have been antagonized in ways that I liked her sketch comedy show. Her sketch comedy show was brilliant. So we did it again. We did again, but I I acknowledged it. Yeah. We just, yeah. (laughs) So what I think, I think with that show, because it's iHeartRadio. Yeah. I, it raises some interesting research questions of what spaces can authenticity happen in podcasting. You know, I feel like I often, I am sort of, um, what's the word? Turn Like, I, I don't, the podcasts that are very popular, that's actually just made me think, that's a reason why I don't tend to listen to them. I don't expect them to be as authentic because they're so popular. They're maybe 
Um, there's a tour group looking at us. Is that what's happening? Yeah. Um, I, I assume that's because it's so popular and there's some sort of corporate sponsorship that it's not going to be authentic. And I just, I never put that in words, but I just realized that's why um, I don't listen to a lot of like the major podcasts. I, 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 there are some like that. Like I've never listened to Stuff You Should Know, which also just got sold to iHeartRadio for like. It's, I've listened to a couple episodes. It's good. I think Stuff You Should Know did an IPO, which is an, I, if I were to expect a podcast to do an IPO, I would have expected it to be Marin. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, the, the idea that Rogan, well, he uh, also, I mean, there's the whole right wing aspect of podcasting. Well, that has, yeah, that's a good, that's a good question. When do we expect like the, the ease of entry in this space to be overcome by people that want to patrol it for more fascist purposes, which, which is what we saw happen. It already with Twitter. has. It already has. I mean. You put it out there. Oh, can we just go? Can we jump back yeah. to about the oversaturation? Yeah. I think the issue that I have with that, and the same issue that we say that like there's too much TV now, it's mm-hmm. it's too much content. Which I have said also is that that the reason that because it's so open and, and quote unquote democratic, you get people of color being able to speak on it. You get voices that haven't been able to create things on the quote-unquote mainstream that get through. So that's why I don't want to jump to that. Yeah, we're probably oversaturated with white comedians talking to each other as a podcast, but like the podcast you mentioned, The Read is something I listen to a lot. I mean, those there's a chance for those voices to get through. So I don't think saying it's oversaturated, I think, is really kind of dismissing those voices. I think about the peak. Do you remember when the the executive – in charge of programming at FX Network, talked about peak TV. Yes. Um, I thought if you look at what was the number one show at that time, it was Empire. So, like, it's That's almost, a, yeah. and, like, it was, like, right after Moonlight wins Best Picture, and then people are like, are movies? Is the theater going experience <laughs> dead? Is, like. Is film over? Is film over? Like, yeah, it, it. Because it takes years and years of oversaturated to finally get something like Issa Rae's show, right? To get Euphoria, to get Black Lady Sketch Show on right. HBO. You know what I mean? Like you have to wait, and then once those are there, you decide to say there's too well, much. And yet, but like those, when those voices are there, and like in a way that makes white people feel good, um, and some of those shows can be really good. Like one of my um, professors at um, Syracuse wrote Frank's Place. And which is a great, you know, a great. I don't know that. Is uh, that older? Yeah, it's a black sitcom. Takes place in an old bar. Oh my god, it's a sitcom. I don't know. I've I fancy myself a sitcom. It won expert. Emmys, and it was. Yeah. Um, it's pretty good. Um, and it was on CBS at a time when that meant something. But it wasn't Norman Lear, the white savior. <laughs> That's true. It very yeah. much wasn't. It was um, Rich Dubin, who's. Um, uh, a, a topic for another time. I did um, a historiography paper on All in the Family, and Norman Lear is not great. Like, basically, right. people were writing in about his show and saying, yes, I know you're trying to make it funny, but people are believing Archie Bunker and looking up to him right. as a hero. And he wrote back, he's like, you don't, you don't understand it. It's like, no, that's not the point, Norman Lear. Like, it's <laughs> you can't just put well, something out and expect people... There, to read it your way. There's an arrogance to that generation that yeah. comes from the fact that 
the stakes for sitcoms in 1970 to 1971 were so low oh, that God. if you— It's a terrible show. I'm not even talking about political message. I'm talking about aesthetics and boring and scenes. It's just—it drags. Well, yeah, I, I think that, like— It's a different era. Yeah, but, you know, what's interesting is you look at the aesthetics of that, and then you look at, like, something like Lucky Louie, which, um, you know, people defended Louis K. Oh, look, he's doing something avant-garde because he's yeah. taking on this aesthetic that we— are you talking about Louie or Lucky Louie? Lucky Louie. Oh, his first one. Okay. Right, yeah. Where he was basically doing like an Ozzy and Harriet thing. And, yeah, uh, I love a sitcom. I love a traditional sitcom with new voices, which is why I love one the new One Day at a Time. Yeah, I think that the new— and I'm the, a sucker for a sitcom. The new One Day of a time, at a Time is interesting because like when that was canceled— we started to see, we you start to see the cracks in the narrative of like Netflix is going to make things ever, for content creators. Like oh, Netflix new, is evil. And and like they went through a period where they canceled all the stuff with with stars of color because yeah. um, Tuca and Birdie went away. Which I didn't really enjoy that show. But I haven't gotten to it yet, so yeah. I'm I'm the reason it got canceled. <laughs> Because uh, I told myself I have to finish BoJack before I start. I know. I have a couple episodes left of BoJack. It's a, I love – that's one of my favorite shows, but it, sometimes it's an effort. Do you know who is one of the executive producers on that show? And this blew my mind. Who? Michael Eisner. Disney? That's yeah. That's surprising because isn't he uh, – okay. Yeah, and uh, like he – like Eisner, it makes sense that that would be what he was working on, but like – that show takes risks and is it's like good. Yeah, time check. It's two o'clock. I have okay. ten minutes left. Okay, so let's now that we've. I gone, mean, you could stay and talk. To no, yourself. I don't want to. That's no fun. <laughs> I don't know. I don't. That people that do solo podcasts are astounding. Yeah, that's a lot. I can't imagine doing it. Well, that's how they all started. Yeah, is that you had what's his name who got fired from the New York Times and it's like screw that. Casey I'm going to create a new thing. Um, no, oh. Um, he has um, radio open source. Christopher Lydon. Okay. Christopher Lydon got mad and he got fired during like the for saying something about Bush in the oh, New shit. York Times, and he got hooked up with this guy, and he's like, "Well, I'm going to tell the news myself in these long, unedited, and yeah. very, very much like um, just Howard Beale-y. Very. Well, that's how like the demo the de- um, the democratic democratic nature of media, like all these like women who are coming out about sexual assault. I mean, they're writing it on blogs, they're writing it on Medium, right? You know, and 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 reporters are talking to them, but that's the way that you get that out. Dan Sh- the Dan Schneider scandal oh, at Nickelodeon, Nickelodeon got broken on a Nickelodeon podcast. Yeah, not not owned by Nickelodeon, but you know, there's a there's a lot of fandom. Yeah, that got broken. That story got broken, and I think the same thing happened with the Ren and Stimpy guy, is that that was broken on a podcast. Um, people are capable like of changing it because they are in control of it in a way that other people are are not. But I think that when you look at that on a monetary level, that, that becomes sort of an illusion. Yeah. Unless because of how, how it's been commodified and Mm -hmm. to say is there really that much of a difference between something like um wtf or um the amy schumer one just because amy schumer's working with a a company that there's a reason that we're listening to this voice that's Mm -hmm. not necessarily just it's authentic it what is it's authentic to what we think the world is Mm -hmm. did you listen to go bayside with april richardson 
No, but I love her. She's great. Oh, she's great. She did. Um, that's my other kind of favorite podcast is a recap podcast. Of do you do? Did you listen to any of the previously TV stuff like Extra Hot Great? And... Um, no, but I do listen to the again with this not a tune oh, religiously. I think I'm going to write a paper about that in the fall because about which one, Extra Hot Great or uh, Again with this? Again with this. It's uh, either that or Suicide Buddies are the two mm-hmm. that I want to yeah. I want to look at because I think there is a feminist performativity to having a space where you don't have to play by the aesthetic rules of criticism. Those the the television without pity folks who yeah. were all m- women yeah. and 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 queer males that yeah. now all have their own podcasts. Yeah. Interestingly, like. I don't really listen to Extra Hot Great because like if I don't watch the show they're talking about I don't really want to know and they they watch. I mean it's their job to watch right. TV. I'm going to let you I'll play my when we're off. Yeah. I'm going to play my ringtone for you. Yeah. Or I can maybe pull it up now. But go ahead. What were yeah. you saying? Well, I just wanted to, to close with this, taking this back to the Copeland, uh-huh. which is take it back. Take it the back. I, there's a part in the very end of this essay, um, this passage, which is I think one of the just my favorite things that's been written about podcasting, um, and where she's talking sort of about what can. Okay, the study of digitized material voice has become more crucial now than ever as our daily lives fill with debit digital image and text-based interactions via social media and instant message. It's hard not to notice how meaning, emotion, and personal coalition can so easily become lost in translation as words become disconnected from their unique material voided expression. However, the voice cannot be fully comprehended or studied exclusively detached from the extended body and sociocultural circumstances of of its unstable performative being. Did you read this part earlier? Uh, No. The human voice, in particular here, the publicly amplified and digital voice as an extension of the body, binds it to our understanding of the self and our performative identities from a phenomenological and existential perspective. Its political and affective value remains dependent on the social and oral relationship at play concerning the listener and the sound work as a commodity. The human voice is a powerful tool and a bodily extension for our presence and understanding of one another, but the voice amplified, the voice carefully and thoughtfully molded through sound art, holds dramatic intimacy, effect, and power. And I think that that is why the voices are there, and I think we got to... I think that's a good place to stop. No, no, that's okay. We're good. Yeah. It's 2.03. I'm good. Yeah. Do you have anything you need to plug? <laughs> it's a plug time. Um, well, what is what is the public? What what sort of public is this podcast for? Well, I don't know. I, I think that it could become something more, but I think that you won't know until like we keep doing this. That's true. We have to set the, you have to set the, the rules and everything. Um, I don't have anything to plug. <laughs> give me a, if this, give me a job. After I was going to say, PhD. yeah, GSS, um, <laughs> oh, when is no. our first GSS yeah. meeting? Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I'm not going to plug that. Oh yeah. Um, I don't know that I have anything to plug either. Um, I'm going to a very expensive conference in San Diego in November. So if you want to give me money for that, that would be great. What is that what conference is that? Pacific Ancient Modern Language Association. Wow. I am performing um, poetry uh, about the films of 1999, where I use Linda Hutchins' um, poetics of postmodernity as a model to integrate Shakespeare's heroines into the films of 1999 to problematize them. 
I feel so boring in my in my academic pursuits. Yeah. And I'm also doing a You just agreed with me. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm you're boring. not. No. Yeah. Like we literally had a conversation yesterday about um Don't bring it up. Yeah, I don't we <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. That conversation doesn't need to ever be yeah, brought up yeah. again. But like I don't think there's anything boring. If you're interested in something, it's not boring. That's true. As I, I appreciate your creativity because I really I used to do a lot of creative writing yeah. and I've really tried to keep doing that, but it's just it's hard, you know. But I, it, but I, you know, being in academia is an excuse, you know. I I sit and I've watched three seasons of The Good Fight in the past two days. I, you know what I mean? Like that was on me, so I could have. Yeah, Christine I was, Baranski. That's yeah. Good. Watch the Good Fight on CBS. Oh my God, Christine Baranski is my favorite ever. She is. She's amazing. She's, That's what I'm plugging. She's the best five minutes of the Birdcage. Also, her husband is played by Gary Cole, so it's like it is like a power couple. Yeah. Anyway, (laughs) did you watch Veep? I did not. I was really into the thick of it, but by the time we got to Veep, I'm like, oh, this is this is too close to home. Yeah. Anyway, okay. So we just really went off. So anyway, in closing, I think it it give them money for the conference. Giving money for the conference and just listen to voices that you've not heard before. Oh, that's a good one. Is that if you are a listener of podcasts and you just listen to podcasts where people talk about their vacations to um, Hawaii, maybe listen to people who go on vacation to um, Hampton, the Hamptons. Yeah. And, or, Wouldn't you want to learn about somebody who's different than you? I would. Like, I'm bo- like sometimes I bore myself so much that I'm like, please, somebody else, tell me their experience. I, that's kind of why I'm so obsessed with... Um, with uh, Waiting to Excel, because it's people that are 10 years older than me, one of which is um, black and the other one is a Pacific Island queer um, how old? How old are you? I'm 35. Okay. So uh, Was that a personal question? Uh, no, I don't know if it is anymore. You reach an age where it doesn't matter. I that, This is a whole different podcast. When I tell people my age, they freak out because they can't believe it, and that make, gives me feelings. 27? No. <laughs> 41. I had to think a minute. I had to remember my birthday's on Monday and I had to think about it for a second. I forgot. Okay. Yeah, so they'll be like, oh, well, wow, I can't believe you're 41. You seem so young. I'm like, I know you think that's a compliment because women who appear as younger is supposed to be valued in society. But then I'm also like, do I act like a we, immature weirdo? When I was still in ministry, the, the, the. That's a whole other podcast. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> um, there was a, one of the, the organization i was involved with had a ministry called the gift of years uh-huh. and w- which was ministering and teaching people of age over usually i think over 70 um um give empowering them to both serve and be served and also important to that was quit apologizing for your age quit like making jokes about senior moments and stuff and be there are things to be very proud about oh i love my age yeah um, I I love being old. Yeah, I, I and going to sleep at nine thirty. Now that doesn't mean that you should always like say to people, "Good for you for being in your forties," um, because that's also like, especially when they're still thirty eight. I mean, I am what I am. It's yeah. it's that's the age I've lived it. <laughs> All I can say is I've lived it. I've gone through linear time, and I deserve a celebration every year for that. Here, this I, here's like the perfect quotidian like podcast moment yeah you just said i am what i am when i first moved here to bowling green a year ago next week um i went to the um the the wendy's on south main great and place 
it's fine. No, the Wendy's on Wooster is better. Yeah, the Wendy's on Wooster is better. Yeah. Uh, but there was a guy working there that had a neck tattoo on it that said, I am what I am. That's amazing. Was it based on the song? I don't know. From, th- uh, what's it called, La Caja Faux? I don't, th- I, I don't was think thinking, so. is the thing that you are Popeye? <laughs> like, you're like, is this a queer anthem that you're getting uh, this from? I did not get that vibe, but you know, I don't yeah, know, knows? like. Like, but I am what I am. You Google it. That is like it's. That's what it's from. It's from that song, isn't it? Yeah. Um. I my father most beautiful creation. Or, my, yeah. My father was in that. Um. He played the restaurant owner the, when they did in Charleston a few years ago. Oh wow. Yeah. Oh, so you come from a lo- a, a lineage of theater. Um. <laughs> it, that's another story. Okay. <laughs> okay. So any last thoughts about this book to tie it before we? Before we part, um, I only read this chapter, but yeah. I do want to peruse the other chapters. It's a really good text. I, mm-hmm. I don't love the Barry essay in this, but he's an important. If you are as interested in podcasting as I am, I am. Barry is a very important scholar to read because he set the rules for how people think about it. Um, and I'm, you know, one day let's plug our future um, edition of uh, collected essays about podcasting that we'll probably do. Um, yeah, I, I, 2028, I, I don't know. Maybe it's a panel. I think it should be like a Ray Brown panel. Okay. I, I, that way I can maybe convince, um, maybe I can convince Stacy Brown to come, um, or I had not, there's so many Stacy's. Yeah. That's, that's the thing that when you get into feminist studies, there's so many Stacy's. Isn't there a theater, Stacy? Yeah, Stacy Wolf. Yeah, Stacy Wolf. Who, who, who's who great. coined the term homo liberalism. Yeah. Um, and Stacy, um, I don't know, it's Keech. like Stacy Keach, and if th- there's so many Judiths, and there's <laughs> so I, so I just so many my players. Um, there's not a lot of yeah, that's true. I should change my name anyway. I do have to go. Okay, well, this was fun. It's been, this is fun. Sign off. Yeah. Okay. Um, cue exit music. Yeah, absolutely. The, in um, in mm. queer temporality, there is no um, end. Yeah, that's point. true.